was so riveting. Please watch it again. more applause than I've ever gotten for an actual sermon that I've preached. This is slightly terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> um, in, a few, in a few short weeks, I think it's May 6th or 16th or one of those, one of those days, uh, we're going to see in the world the, the coronation of King Charles III. Who are like my follow the royal family people? I'm not one of them. I'm just raising my hand in solidarity. Right, there's a couple folks that are big. There's some husbands pointing at their wives who don't want to admit it. That's okay. <laughs> some people like to follow the royal family a lot. And, and King Charles's coronation will be one for the ages. It's going to be the spectacle of all spectacles. Which is, it's kind of odd to me because like King Elizabeth, or Queen Elizabeth, was very young. And you know, obviously she ruled for the longest time of any really reigning monarch. We don't really suspect that King Charles will be king for more than maybe 15 or 20 or so years. right? We, you never know, but we just don't suspect that it'll be that long of rain, but they're estimating that they are going to spend, by the time all is said and done, over a hundred million pounds, about 120 million dollars, depending on how the inflation plays out by the time we get there, um, on this coronation. Uh, in, in comparison, if you're trying to look back, Queen Elizabeth spent a total of 1.5, less than 1.5 million dollars on her coronation. So even adjusted for inflation, it's, it's an insane amount of dollars or pounds that will go towards this one singular event to proclaim something that already is. Right? We're not waiting for King Charles to become king. King Charles became king the moment Queen Elizabeth breathed her last. He's been king for, for months at this point. It's nothing new. But yet, we will have this elaborate, ornate ceremony. There will be crown and jewels and food that you and I should ever just hope and dream to taste. There will be dancing. There will be musical guests that you and I would never be able to get into the same room with, all to celebrate this person becoming king. And it's a big deal. And all of this is going to be happening for a monarch that will probably not be around for more than 15 or so years. And so in a, in a few decades, we're going to do this whole dance again. And by then, we'll probably be spending $200 million. All right? I'm glad I'm not a taxpayer in Great Britain. Let's just put it that way. All right? As we enter into Holy Week, our first stop is Palm Sunday. Right? And if you're new to this and you're wondering, why are we weirdos waving palm trees around? You guys live in Ohio. Is it like a, in your head you're in Florida? Or like why is it that we do this? weird, strange thing, we have to remember that this is effectively what we're celebrating today is Jesus' coronation day, right? If you're wondering why the palm branches hang tight, we're going to get there. Maybe you've been going to church for a while and no one's ever explained to you why the palm branches. I would hope not, but it's possible, right? This is the day we celebrate the coronation of Jesus. The king of all kings is coming into Jerusalem and proclaiming his reign. But this coronation does not look like King Charles's. There's not nearly as much pomp and certainly not as much circumstance. And the budget, even adjusted for inflation to biblical times, kind of pales, right? 100 million pounds, one donkey. 
rental, which I think was free if we look at scripture. Right? The donkey was donated to the, to the cause of this whole triumphal entry. And so it's a very different way of looking at it. Jesus' triumphal entry is all about expectations. Expectations from Jesus, expectations of Jesus, different people and the expectations they had, and us and the expectations we have. And so this morning, I want to invite you into this world of the triumphal entry. I want to look together with, the, with us at the text in Matthew. And then when we, we, we get through that, I want to try to dig in a little bit and make some sense of the story and what exactly it means for us today. So I want to invite us to stand together and we'll read Matthew 21, uh, verses 1 through 11 together. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees. Here we go, palm branches. And spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him, and that they followed him and were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. As low-key as this seems, right, and it does seem a little weird that you know, Jesus, as this coming king, is riding in on a donkey, right? It would be the equivalent, of, I thought of this, of if the president were to ride in his, you know, in his inauguration, ride down 1600 Avenue on rollerblades, like, it is a weird image. It doesn't add up with what we would think of as the conquering king or the warrior. We would expect a white horse or maybe an elephant or something, depending on where in the world you lived. But he comes in on this donkey. And as low-key as that seems to us, this whole thing is about Jesus announcing himself as the coming king. Right? It's odd, but up till now, Jesus has been all about intentionally veiling himself. The very idea that Jesus would come in proclaiming to be the king, forget the donkey for a second, is a weird thing. Because Jesus' ministry from start to finish has been about being veiled. He intentionally doesn't talk a whole lot about exactly who he is to the crowd at large. Right? He's sharing with his disciples and he'll be teaching. But what do we see? He goes and he heals somebody and then what does he say? Don't tell anyone. It seems like every time he's about to get in hot water with the Pharisees, he somehow magically disappears. He just kind of slips away. He has this gift, this knack of being the, the miraculous healer. But then when it comes time for recognition, he's just kind of gone. Jesus kept a, a relatively low profile in his ministry. He chose to reveal himself selectively to people 
somewhat arbitrarily sometimes, right? He goes to the poor beggar and heals them and then says, don't talk about it to anyone else. Or he'll share with the disciples and say, who do you say I am? But, but he tells them not to tell anybody. And so after all of that time of seemingly hiding, at least veiling who he is, maybe insinuating but not outright saying it, he comes into Jerusalem, coming, coming down the hill into, into the city, and he says all of a sudden everything about royal and kingship that he possibly could. Right? He's proclaiming himself to be the king, the new ruler to end all rulers. And so you would think, he would do that in a majestic way, but no, instead, he comes riding in as the ruler of, of the world on a donkey. And why on earth would he do that, right? What, what is it about him coming in that would have the people understand who he is? And why would they wave or lay palm branches down for him to, to go across as he enters the city? Why would they be this, this almost coronation type of event, right? The people of the, the city are accepting him as king. They're proclaiming him as king as he comes in. They're understanding him as king. What is going on? Because I don't know about you. If I saw a guy coming down the hill on a donkey, I'd be talking to the building team saying, hey, there's a, there's a crazy person coming down and probably is going to disrupt our worship. Can you guys handle it? Right? We wouldn't be saying, that's the king. There he comes. So what's happening? Right? This one day, everything changes and there's no more veiling. This is the day he announces who he is. And the reason why we understand it or why they would have understood it at the, at the time is twofold. One relates to prophecy and one relates to history. So let's take a look at first the prophecy and then the history. This is the text in, in Zechariah 9.9 that Matthew directly quotes and says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew directly quotes in his triumphal entry account from Zechariah 9.9. Because the idea is, the reason for the donkey is because that's what the prophet Zechariah said would happen. Guys, your king is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. And he's coming on a donkey. And so the moment that donkey comes over the hill, the people go, Zechariah 9-9. Donkey. Everybody. Get your palm branches. Let's go. And they start putting palm branches down. And the second reason, the second big difference that we see here is that there's a, there's a connection of history when it comes to the palm branches. Right? And we have to understand something here before we move to that, to that, is that there's another scripture that works its way in here. This is really subtle. But if you look really closely at the quote of Matthew, he's not perfectly quoting Zechariah 9.9. There's two things that are left out of there or altered. And the first is this. He leaves out the phrase in Zechariah 9.9 of righteous and having salvation is he. We don't see that in Matthew's gospel. Right? And the reason we don't see it is because it hasn't happened yet as he tells the story. Right? Zechariah is prophesying, but salvation hasn't been secured yet. And so he makes an adjustment to the prophet's text as he quotes it because he understands that that line hasn't come true yet. It'll be true a week from then, but it's not true yet, right? And so we have that adjustment there. The second thing that we see is there's a, there's a weird difference in the very first opening line. They don't match. 
So Zechariah says, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. And Matthew says, Say to the daughters of Zion. It's not quite the same. And it's not the same because Matthew isn't just quoting Zechariah 9.9 there. Matthew is also drawing from Isaiah 62. Let's take a look at that. 62.11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. What's happening there? Isaiah, in his prophecy about salvation to come, is making an observation about it going to the ends of the earth. Right? What does he say? Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Right? And so when Matthew is quoting this text, this prophet, that's why he doesn't say the prophet Zechariah. He just says, as the prophets have said, right, number one, it's going to be a donkey, so watch for the donkey. Number two, he's bringing salvation to all of the ends of the earth. This king that's coming isn't just about this one space and time. It's, it's, it's a salvation, it's a deliverance, it's a rescue, it's a peace. But it's not just for Jerusalem, it's for the ends of the earth. Matthew here is applying what they think about Jesus clearly to all of God's created humanity. And he does it in this subtle little linguistic way that's just so slightly off that we just might miss it. Right? But he's quoting two guys here, not just one. Jesus isn't just coming to save the Jews. His kingdom coming in peace, it brings us not just for this small group of people in the Middle East, it's for all of the people to the ends of the earth. And by the way, the donkey doesn't just make clear that he's the Messiah. The donkey is also a symbol of peace. The donkey is an animal of peace. And so when he comes riding in on it, he's not coming in as a war-proclaiming hero who's coming to crush the enemy, so to speak, in the way that they would expect at least. He's coming to usher in a kingdom of peace. He's coming not like a lion, but like a dove almost. Right? And so it's not what you would expect. And so his overthrow of the world isn't violent. It's humble and peaceful. It's kind of odd. It's not how you would expect a conquering hero to emerge. You would expect him to come on maybe a, a white horse with a big sword and an army behind him in tow, ready to look at the Roman rule in the, in the city and say, you can get out voluntarily or I can make you get out. Right? But no, he comes in humbly on a donkey in the most unexpected way. Right? The trees, second, are also an, an important little detail that we miss. Right. What's up with the palm branches? Why are they laying them down? Why are they waving them? Well, there's a historical connection. About 150 years before this happened, there was a, what we call the Maccabean Revolt. Right? Judas Maccabee led that revolt, and there was a revolt of the, of the city of Jerusalem, of the, of the Israelites, against, against Hellenistic influence. Right? And they won, and there was a time where Jerusalem came back because of that. They conquered it back. And so at the time when that happened, Maccabee rode into the city, and he was greeted with palm branches. And so this idea of the conquering king coming in is something that they knew from just a century and a half prior. And so when the palms come out, Anyone who's still wondering what's going on at that point is clear because history was told through oral tradition to generations upon generations. And so the second they see palm trees, they go, not, there's another ruler coming. We need to go and see and celebrate and proclaim and say, yay, he's here. 
And so that's what draws the big crowds out. And that's why the whole city is gathered in celebration and in jubilance about this king coming, even though he just rides down the hill on a lowly donkey. Jesus isn't trying to create any pomp and circumstance. But the people see him for who he is. So they come to him to celebrate in jubilance. And that's why we wave palm trees today, because we also celebrate with jubilance and we welcome our coming king. Now there's two ways, as he he comes into the city, there's two ways, I want to say maybe expectations, uh, if you want to call them that, of how Jesus is received by the people. And what's interesting is Jesus, both of those factions, the way that he's received, both of them get one thing right and one thing wrong. If only there could be like a middle, middle ground between the crowds and the people and the religious leaders. And they could both get it, you know, one's too small, one's too big, one's just right. But we don't see that. There's two reactions to Jesus. They're both kind of right, mostly wrong. All right, so let's, let's look at them. First, we have the crowds that welcome him with waving palm branches, right? They shout Hosanna and they're ready to receive their new king. But there's a, a real disconnect, right? Because if we know a week later... They're the same people that are shouting, crucify him, right? The same people that jubilantly welcome Jesus into the city as the conquering hero king, just less than a week later, want to see him dead. And so what happens? What gives? They are looking for someone to come in and eradicate the Roman rule and the thumb that's on them, the oppressiveness of the government. They're expecting a conquering king to come in and clean house. They're celebrating because they think that when he gets into the city, the next thing that's going to happen is that he's going to go to the Roman rulership and essentially throw them out by the sword or voluntarily or whatever. They expect that by night's end, they're going to be free of the oppression of the Roman Empire. But that's not what happens. The conquering hero doesn't look to them in the end like a conquering hero because the way he intends to conquer doesn't add up in the minds of the people. They turn on him because when he's arrested and he doesn't fight, he starts to look weak. He starts to look like maybe he's just all talk and no action. Maybe this is not the guy. And if he's not the guy, that means he's an imposter. And if he is an imposter of the Savior, well, then crucify him. They didn't understand. And so what, what they got right is that they saw him as a king. When he comes into the city, they proclaim him as king. But what they didn't get right was understanding what the nature of his kingdom was. What kind of king he intended to be how he intended to conquer and rule and reign because his way of conquering doesn't look the way the world's way of conquering does. And so they have him arrested, they have him crucified, and they call for his head because he doesn't meet their expectations, even though originally they bring him in as king. The second group is the religious leaders. Now they get right what the people got wrong. They understand who he's coming in to be. They understand that he's not just coming in to be the king that overthrows the Roman rule, right? They understand his claims. He says, look, they know that he is saying, I am God. My kingdom is not of this world. They understand, the religious leaders do, based on the prophecies and all these things, exactly who Jesus is. 
or says he is. What they get wrong is they don't believe him. And they don't want anything to do with it. To them, they understand every claim he's making, but they don't believe that he is who he says he is. And so because of that, he is to them a threat. He threatens their way of life, their rule and the, the status quo. He threatens the relationship that they have with the people as high in status. They threaten the things having been being able to be done their way on their terms at their time. They threaten the authority and the weight and the respect that the religious leaders have because he can't possibly be who he says he is. That's just preposterous. And so the religious leaders get who he is but don't believe it and want him dead. The people celebrate him because they don't get who he is until they realize they're going to be disappointed and then they also want him dead. From the get-go, the religious leaders decide that Jesus is dangerous and has to be gotten rid of. And so as the week progresses, what we start to see is the religious leaders magnificently tearing down Jesus' reputation. They're smart. They know that they can't just kill him in the streets because the people would revolt they have to turn everyone against him. And so they go to the Roman rule and they say, look, this person is making claims of kingship, of earthly kingship. He's a danger to you. You need to, you need to deal with him or he's going to be a thorn in your side. He's going to start to question Roman rule. I heard him say that he was taking over. Right? And so he pits them against the Roman rule and then when they arrest him and they eventually put him in front of Pontius Pilate, that's when the people see that he's not who they thought he was and then they turn too. It's this giant week of deception to turn people against the Savior of the world. The only problem is that he's exactly who he says he is. Right? So the week unfolds and we follow Jesus' journey to the arrest crucifixion to the death on the cross. But then next week when we gather this Sunday in this place, we celebrate that resurrection. Because he did conquer. He just conquered more than they bargained for. We thought, they thought he would conquer a city. In reality, he conquered the whole world, past, present, and future. But for today, what we can take away from this triumphal entry of Jesus as King is this. I think the biggest thing to understand is that whoever you think you are and however you think you understand and relate to God, I think we have to acknowledge and confess that at times in our lives, we are both of the factions of this account. At times, we're the Pharisees and at times, we're the people. We all, at some time in our life, are just like the people of Jerusalem, right? We shout, Hosanna, we, we praise the Lord, we gather on Sunday, and then we proclaim. But when we want Jesus, we want him to be the way we want him to be. We want him to be happy, loving, and, and tame. We, we have no idea how Jesus actually operates in our lives. And when he goes against the way that we think he should operate, we essentially live a life that shouts, crucify him. Right? How many people do we know Faithful Christians until Scripture suggests that they might not do something that they want to do or live a way they want to live or think a way they want to think. That, that God has the audacity to tell a human who he created how to shape and live their hearts and minds. And then they go, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. He can be my savior, but I don't know if I want him to be my king. 
At least not if he's not going to be the kind of king I want him to be. Right? This is my way of thinking uh, that, the, that the king should be. And if, I don't, if he can't fit into that mold, then, you know, I'm not going to say outright that I'm done with Jesus because most of us wouldn't do that. But we're, our commitment starts to waver, you know. Do we invest less in the kingdom? I'm not talking about money, but just our, our hearts and minds, you know. Church becomes a little less important than it used to be. You know, sleep is really nice. We start to let our face drop by the wayside because it doesn't meet our expectations. Right? Perhaps we're not shouting crucify openly in the streets, but at the very least, we're ignoring them. Right? Other times, we're like the Pharisees. We, we understand exactly who he is, but we don't want him to interfere in our affairs. We don't want him to change the way things are. We like church just how it is. We don't, want him, we don't want him to like meddle in how we do church. We don't want him to call our church or our, our own lives to do something radical that we might not want to be a part of. We, we, we've been going here for 30 years and we, we have a respect here and we can't mess with that. We can't allow Jesus as king to meddle with the way that we think about the, the church and the, and, and the way that we function in it and who we are in it and how, how our lives are, are doing what we want to do, right? The, the pharisaical mindset says, I, I have set this up the way it, it should be. It's comfortable here. What if the Lord called us tomorrow to sell this building and worship in a tent? How would that congregational meeting go? Don't answer that. <laughs> All in favor? No. <laughs> right? We don't like the Lord meddling with the way that we have things set up, with how we do life, with how we think, with how we act, with how we spend our time, with how we spend our resources. When he starts to meddle, when he starts to say, but, like, but guys, this is my kingdom. Like, I'm the ruler, you're the subjects. That's when we go, yeah, no. I, I really like being my own ruler a lot. I'm comfortable there. I'm home there. That's, that's kind of where I want to be. And so if we're honest, when he pushes against us, a lot of times we'd rather just not bother. Right? You see, in the triumphal entry, we see both the fullness of Christ and the fullness of mankind. We see Jesus proclaiming to be king and showing exactly what kind of king he's going to be. And we see the world's hypocritical celebration yet rejection of him all in one giant melting pot. All of this, the glory of God and the majesty of his reign and the sinfulness and the mess of mankind is all in this thing together. And the most beautiful part of the whole thing is that the whole reason he's coming on the donkey is to look at all of the mess of who they were and who we are and to say, yeah, I'm going to die for that. That's why he's there. He's there to look at you and all of your mess and your wretchedness and say, yeah, yeah, I, I, love, I love that. I'm going to die for it, and then I'm going to make it beautiful. You just wait. Oh, they want to crucify me. Yeah, that's part of my plan. You don't think for a second I'm in control here? That's the beauty of when we look at the account that he has with Pontius Pilate. Read that interaction this week. There's just such a level of calmness because Pilate just has no idea of who Jesus is. Like, he's so obliviously dumb to it. And Jesus is just so stinking calm because he knows exactly what he's doing and exactly what he's there for and exactly what's going to happen next. So he's, just, he's just, yeah, 
Pilate, you know, go ahead, do what you got to do. It's part of my plan. You were part of my plan. You were made to do what you're going to do. And I was made to do what I was going to do. And, and Jesus is this coming king and someday he will return. Right? And it won't be on a donkey. I can promise you that. Right? The next time he comes will be as a conquering reigning hero to deal the, the death blow to evil once and for all so that we might live in perfect harmony, in perfect health, in perfect love, in perfect peace with one another. Because we serve the king of kings, the king of peace. Everything Jesus does or has done to him is part of his intentional plan and everything about his plan is for us. And so this week, as we move into Holy Week and we start to walk into the path of the cross, I would encourage you to read through Scripture, to look at the Gospel accounts and follow the days. Look at what happened Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and the Resurrection Sunday. So that when we gather on Monday, Thursday to mourn together, and then on Sunday next week we gather to celebrate and triumph and joy together, we might be in the same mindset as the people that watched it happen. Right? We can be about the celebration of the Lord's work. That a people so sinful that they would reject their own Savior are loved by Him. Let's pray. God, we are grateful to You. We thank You for who You are. We thank You that You sent Your Son to live, to reign, to heal, and to die for us. We thank you that you sent him as the conquering king, not in a way that we would expect to be conquering, but in a way that ultimately conquers all things and deals death's blow to all things evil. We praise you for his work in this world. We praise you for his work on the cross. We praise you for the fact that we can go into next week with hope and jubilance, and joy because of what he has done. Prepare our hearts and minds. And Lord, as we receive this meal this morning, we put ourselves in the mindset of those who received that meal for the very first time. That as they received it as a means of grace, so would we. We love you and praise you. And all his people said,